Welcome to Wonk, a podcast sounding out smart policy and the people behind it. I'm Edward Greenspawn. As the expectations rise, we're going to see our culture and our language become revitalized in our community to the point that we're going to have very, very strong, very independent and very proud HISLA members that know who they are, know where they come from, and have that strength reinstilled in them. Like many remote Indigenous communities, Kitimat Village, British Columbia, was not that long ago a place more familiar with poverty and diminished hope than opportunity and social mobility. Kitimat Village is the home of the Heisla First Nation. It's where Crystal Smith grew up, under a single roof with her grandparents, parents, uncles, and sisters. Today, Crystal Smith is her nation's elected chief and the guiding force behind a multi-billion dollar LNG project that is fast becoming a model for Indigenous-led and owned development. Cedar LNG received its environmental approvals in 2023 and now is on the cusp of a final investment decision. Construction could start this year, making use of some of the same infrastructure as LNG Canada, a shell-led project also on Heisla territory. Liquefied natural gas is contentious, seen by some as a backward step in fighting climate change, and others as a way to get Asia off coal. Either way, it is delivering renewed purpose and opportunity to the Heisla community. Chief Smith has emerged as a powerful voice for the proposition that BC's gas can be developed and the environment respected. It's a pleasure to have you with us today, Chief Smith. Thank you for having me. Let's just start with a little bit of background, if we can. Now, the Heisla have been at the forefront of a new era of Indigenous-led development, but a lot of Canadians probably don't know very much about your community. So tell us a little bit about Kitimat Village. So Kitimat Village resides at the head of the Douglas Channel on the west coast of British Columbia. We have approximately 2,000 Heisla members that reside here on and in our community and others that reside elsewhere like Vancouver, Vancouver Island, and other areas of British Columbia. What is it you love about your community? Oh, there's there's so many things that I absolutely love about our community. Our community is definitely one that fosters our culture, our language, our identity. It's a beautiful area of BC. We're right in the valley, so there's we're surrounded by mountains and, and also surrounded by the beautiful Douglas Channel with the ocean here. Our members are very passionate about who they are. We are very close-knit community when it comes to family and being supportive of one another. So tell us about the young Crystal Smith growing up there. What kind of future did you see for yourself? When I reflect upon my childhood today, it is definitely one that, when I look back, wasn't one that was full of hope, as most children tell their parents they would want to be a lawyer or a teacher or a doctor. There wasn't that much, I guess, inspiration or access to higher education in our area or in our region. I played basketball since I was nine years old, and I was so fortunate to grow up with my grandparents. My backyard, my playground was the, the ocean. So I'd be walking and the view walking towards the community was Alcan, Yurikan, on the other side of the channel. The aluminum smelter. Yes, yes. Okay. And Yurikan, the pulp and paper mill that was here years ago. 
And up to the right-hand side of my walk was actually our band office, our administrative office. So as a kid walking to basketball practice, essentially those were my options, working in aluminum smelter, where a grade 12 at that time was the requirement, or our band office here in our community. And as I reflected as an adult, my grandparents and and my parents, my uncles, growing up with them, I never would have thought that I was growing up in poverty, just simply because of how well they provided and ensured that my sister and I and my younger siblings were very well taken care of. But when I look back now in comparison to what my two girls have today, it is a very, very drastic difference in regards to how I grew up. So in what way, you know, describe the difference? Obviously, that's a a happy part of the story, I guess, although it sounds like your childhood was pretty happy as well. Yeah, my childhood was absolutely tremendous. Like I grew up with my grandparents who definitely provided the stability and support that my twin and I required. Uh, But the difference from what I had back then to what my girls have is so much opportunity, unlimited opportunity, what we're able to accomplish with the programs and services that we are able to offer today. When I was growing up and when we thought about it, my stepdad put it into my head that I had to access higher education after high school. And back then, it was very limited on what our nation could support me to access that higher education. We didn't have any supports for tutoring or testing to see if there was any other supports that I required. And today, the difference of what my girls and my grandsons have access to, they can be and do whatever they want. And our nation can help support them be truly successful and set them up so that they have every support requirement needed to be successful in what they want to be later in life. In a moment, we'll talk about the economic path that gets you there, but let's just stay with you for one more second because we're leaving off as a little girl, a young woman walking to basketball practice, and today you're the chief counselor of Kitimat Village. You're an important player in the halls of power in BC and in Ottawa and getting things done. So how did that girl get to be this chief? I definitely did not aspire. I knew that I was going to be working in our band office, but I definitely did not think that I would be in this chair so many years later as the elected chief counsel. So that's for sure. My stepdad, who was very influential in my life in regards to the academic portion, he was actually an elected counselor at one point. So I got to hear a little bit about his responsibilities at meetings and him coming home super late from a council meeting and got to get a glimpse of him in leadership. Later on, I came to the nation in about 2008-2009 and had just come off of an internship that I had a placement with Rio Tinto. And when I came back to work for the nation, our first female elected chief counselor, Dolores Pollard, actually did not have any support staff. She had come back into the office where I was stuck in a little cubicle in the back of our building and had asked what they had me doing. And she immediately pulled me from what I was doing and asked if I'd want to help her set up her office and all her paperwork and her files. And I had spent 
about three or four years being the executive assistant to our leadership. And it was actually a very, I think, a very pivotal moment in our nation's time in our history. In 2009, we had signed our first impact benefit agreement as Rio Tinto Alcan was going through their modernization project. And we were waiting for the final investment decision for that project when I had become a part, the executive assistant for the table. And as the wheels of the economic vehicle that we've been on since started turning, then there was a change in our leadership. And our chief counselor in 2011 was Ellis Ross. Ellis was actually one of my basketball coaches. So I'd known him from that perspective of his expectations, his passions, and then became his executive assistant when he was chief counselor. And through that and seeing how passionate and how caring he was for wanting change in our community, I actually took the plunge and ran in the 2013 election, which I was successful becoming a counselor. And then in 2016, Ellis decided that he would move on and become the MLA for our region, which left the chief counselor position vacant for what we had eight months left in our term before our election. And I <laughs> I often describe it as a moment of sheer stupidity or bravery. <laughs> I'm still, still undecided with that one. So on different days, you see it in different ways, I guess. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Today, is it bravery? I, I think so. Yeah, actually, it is. Yes, it is today. Let's talk about that bravery and why you would even use the words bravery, because, you know, you've undertaken one of the great developments in BC and Canada in Indigenous ownership in Canada. So tell us a little bit about that. And of course, economic developments can be very divisive in all communities. I'd love to see how you've navigated that and how hot it gets in the leadership kitchen for you. Well, I'm economic development, and part of the reason why I, I wanted to become a part of our leadership was actually hearing Ellis speak at an event in Vancouver. And I, I hadn't heard him speak until that point. And he spoke about the opportunities that our people didn't have in existence and how we've, for generations, have tried to look to different levels of government. He described it as a fight to get our people what they deserved in terms of programs and services and improving quality of life. And in that speech, he had spoken about how we were finding our way through economic development and becoming a part of more solutions and having actual conversations with proponents that were proposing projects for our territory and how we essentially saw hope through that. And that was actually what sparked me to to become a part of our leadership was so that I could participate in helping that dream become a reality. And it has definitely, definitely been a journey in itself. Many, many ups and downs in, in regards to our participation within the LNG and economic development in our territory. This idea of LNG development, I guess, starts with LNG Canada arriving to build its plant. And you didn't take an ownership position. Perhaps that was not offered to you. 
but you have parlayed that into theater, right? So again, I'd be interested in that process and and how popular or unpopular or divisive, you know, that was. LNG actually started way before LNG Canada in, in our territory. We own a parcel of reserve land across the Douglas Channel on the west side that we refer to as Bish Cove. Our people, the leadership in the 80s, actually did a community referendum process with our membership to designate that parcel of land as an economic development site. So back in the 80s, and and again, our, our leadership took our people through a referendum process so that we ensured that our community was supportive of the industry. And it was actually a facility that was proposed as an import facility of LNG. It's been quite the journey sitting with different leaders, different councillors that come through that are successful in our elections. And we actually have a couple of councillors right now that recall that project and the day that they found out that the project wasn't going to be built and what that meant or what it didn't mean. That must have been a tough day. It, it was very, and, and I could see the look in their faces as they shared the story with us of how the disappointment that they felt that day that the project announced that they wouldn't be proceeding. So LNG has actually been in our community for quite a few years. And now, of course, the discussions have changed to export facilities, not import facilities. Shell came, I would say, two years after that project had been well underway. And it's also absolutely inspiring to see how things have quickly although they don't feel quick at the time, how they've quickly evolved in regards to our participation and our experiences with these different proponents. And you are definitely right. The LNG Canada project is proposed as a very, very influential participant sitting at the table with that development, with the, I would say, typical impact benefit agreement associated with the development such as LNG Canada. And out of that came and it's just its own project, the Cedar project. So just walk us through how you got from the typical impact benefit agreement to being a big owner of a major project that I'm sure that everybody's hoping will go ahead. Well, not everybody, but we'll come to that. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that it's a majority of people would like to see it be successful. So through our negotiations of the regular impact benefit conversations, our consulting team the thoughts and solutions that they came up with. I can't give thanks to them enough. They had thought, if we're going to help support these projects become successful, why can't we be owners of one? So I, I'd actually sat in the room with Ellis Ross, Taylor Cross. There was myself and Dave Lavalley in a boardroom in Calgary where this conversation had come up to to see if we would entertain and support a recommendation like this going into the negotiations. And at that time, it was definitely, we thought it's a no-brainer. Let's see where we can take this. And those negotiations were successful that we would own 400 MMCF of capacity on, on the Coastal Gas Link project to help support a project that would be majority owned by our nation. And so when the negotiations were successful, 
the concept of CEDAR, a majority Indigenous-owned project, the largest in Canadian history, was born. Well, that's quite a tale. You say you hope a majority of people support it, and since you won re-election in 2021, I imagine a majority in your community must support it. But I wonder what you say to those who have fought, fought hard, particularly environmentalists, to block the coastal gas link that you just mentioned, and who oppose Cedar LNG. So what kind of message do you have for them? Our Heisla law is called our new year. And from a very young age, we were taught to look after our territory, to look after our world, our environment, protect it. And essentially, I believe that when we're supporting LNG projects, we're supporting taking care of the environment in a global perspective. Our territories aren't in a bubble as much as each of us would love to have and be able to protect our environment and our territories from what is happening globally. That's just not the reality. And in order to become a part of solutions as to slowing what is happening to our world, we need to be a part of that solution in order to help other areas in our world use greener energy. And so I truly feel that what we are doing here by making decisions that essentially end up resulting in impacting our environment to help the global aspect. So I understand that. And, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you and walk today is because, you know, we want for you to bring that perspective from your community out into wider Canada. But I'm here in central Canada, and everything I've read about Coastal Gas Link, for instance, has been that Indigenous people and environmentalists oppose this. So what you're telling me, that's not a completely accurate depiction. No, it's not. Why are we getting that depiction? You're getting that depiction because it sells the headlines. You're not seeing the great work that has been done along the coastal gas link pipeline. You're not getting the stories of our community members gaining meaningful employment, meaningful careers from this one project. It's a sensationalism. It's a very small minority group. And I, I just want to bring up from a personal perspective, I was one of very few that felt very, very passionate about this project and what it would do for our communities. Myself and our team here felt it was necessary that we do not allow a few minority to speak on behalf of a majority of nations along the pipeline and supported this project because of what it meant. So <laughs> on almost every platform of my social media that I do have, I felt that backlash personally. However, I felt very passionate about what these projects meant, not just for my community, not just for my daughters and my grandchildren, but what it meant for the 19 other nations along the pipeline and the two to three other nations down the channel of what this economic development project meant for our community. Let's go full circle for a moment, your mother, your grandmother. How do you see this all working out in terms of your family? Tell me about the opportunity you might see for your daughters, for your grandson, for, you know, nieces, nephews, others in the community. The hope that I speak of and that I did speak of prior to LNG Canada announcing their positive final investment decision is actually becoming a reality today. I have numerous family that have been provided opportunities on the LNG Canada 
and coastal gas tank projects where to the point that I've seen my younger sister purchase a home even before she was 30, where I've seen my nephew who worked on the coastal gas tank project provide his family a home well under the age of 25. I've seen our membership travel the world where that wasn't a reality in my generations. We've started seeing this transition and, and the change in today's aspect where we're going to see future generation changes is when it comes to the education levels in our communities as the expectations rise within our community and more importantly where we're going to see our culture and our language become revitalized in our community to the point that we're going to have very very strong very independent and very proud Heisla members that know who they are know where they come from and have that strength reinstilled in them so at the beginning you talked about walking to basketball practice and then you told us you know that was very difficult for your community to be able to help you get a post-secondary education is that something that's now common it is absolutely common we are definitely supporting the largest amount of post-secondary students that our nation has ever seen go through and access that support we're able to provide supports for tutoring. We're able to provide supports for daycare that will um, remove every barrier necessary to ensure that our people are successful. You've also said how you see this project in global terms as sustainable. It's adding to the world's sustainability. You're blessed with a relatively clean gas against that people still say it's a fossil fuel. It's gas. But you see it as a net benefit. I absolutely do see it as a net benefit. Everything that we've done here locally, through our, our cultural knowledge and being able to participate in the build of LNG Canada and now through CEDAR and the decisions that we've made, one to be a fully electric powered facility, we made every decision. And another aspect is to have the floating facility to ensure that we were making the decisions and setting CEDAR up to ensure that we could stand in front of our community and say, we made every decision to ensure that we were protecting our environment as much as we possibly could while helping the other countries burn a cleaner energy. And you've brought in a partner to do that in Pembina Pipelines. They're 49.9%, you're 50.1%. Was that a difficult ratio to arrive at? <laughs> no, it wasn't one of the difficult aspects of the conversation. We, um, the Public Policy Forum, did a, an event around the Mi'kmaq's uh, purchase of Clearwater seafood a couple of years ago, and Chief Terry Paul explained how he wanted to have 100%, but he could only get banking support for 50% with uh, Premium Brands of Vancouver. And he said to Premium Brands, well, are you long-term? And they said, yes, our whole corporate mentality is long-term. And he said, what do you mean by long-term? And they said, 30 years, which is pretty long-term and corporate thinking. He said, well, that's great because for us, long-term is forever. And so in 30 years, we'll buy out your 50%. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. And I don't know if that's your aspiration too, but I guess Pemba does bring something important to the table with you. Oh, most definitely. They bring all the necessary expertise when it comes to the build and design of Cedar. It has been a great partnership thus far in getting the project to where we're at today. 
Okay, I want to go back to October 2018. That was when the LNG Canada project go-ahead was announced, and there's a big celebration, an outdoor party, a local rock band, and there was a photo of you in the Globe and Mail with tears in your eyes, hugging your aunt. So tell me about the importance of that day in your life. It was so, so significant. The day that I found out that the decision was positive, I was actually in a hotel room in Vancouver by myself, closer to midnight. And my good friend who is now working on the CEDAR project with us had worked for LNG Canada. And we've definitely developed a really great friendship throughout the years. And he was actually the one that texted me and said, we did it. It's a positive FID. And I feel the emotions right now. Um, I sat in my room and, and cried, thinking our, our community will never be the same. I think that's probably something good to cry about. <laughs> um, I've spoken a lot passionately about what it was like personally for me. And we went through the roller coaster ride with LNU Canada where we were building the momentum up to their FID. And then in, I believe it was 2015, 2016, where they actually let us know that they were delaying their, their FID. Final investment decision for people, yeah. Yes, they were delaying it because of numerous amount of different impacts and that they were going to be delaying it for about two years. And at that time, all the work that we had done up to that point literally came to a, a stall. And when they told us that the final investment decision was going to be delayed, I'll never forget that feeling. I'll never forget the look on Ellis's face. The only way I could describe it is that a community member or somebody close to you had passed away. It felt that devastating. So I guess when you bring in the rock band to celebrate the opening of Cedar LMG, <laughs> how are you going to handle that? Every milestone that we make for Cedar is one that I cannot describe. I cannot imagine how I'm going to be when we make a positive FID. I really, really can't. I think the only way I described it to my partner was I'm going to lose it. Just so that you know, I am going to lose it. Well, that sounds like a good lose it. So <laughs> just project ahead. 20 years. This has gone ahead. What does Kitimat Village look like and feel like? Oh, my goodness. I One, I hope I'm around to be able to see it. I really do. I grew up here my entire life. We've had youth groups that had to be put in a small corner in our upstairs of our recreation facility. We've been moved to a very small, what was probably should have been condemned trailer where we would have to do our activities and have our group fundraisers to today where we built the very first youth center in our community, which is absolutely tremendous and amazing that we can do that for our youth today and many future generations. Um, we've built a state-of-the-art health facility in our community. We've built a 23-unit apartment complex. And this is all to meet the needs of our people today. And you're just getting going. We are just getting going. It is going to be absolutely tremendous to see what the needs of our people in 20 years are going to be, to see what our leadership in 20 years is is going to do to ensure that our people are taken care of and supported and what i hope in 20 years is that our culture 
is well in surviving and that our people can speak fluent Haiza? Well, it's a big vision. And so far, you've been delivering big time. And we wish you continued good fortune with it for you and for your community. Thank you so much for being with us and having this discussion today, Chief Crystal Smith. Thank you for having me. Can I just make one more comment? Please. I just want to take the time to thank our staff and our entire team, our entire ECDEV of the past, our ECDEV of today, and our previous leadership for all of their hard work and dedication. Um, while I, I'm very fortunate to experience and to listen and have this opportunity to speak on podcasts like this, none of this would be possible without all of your input and dedication. So I just want to take the time to acknowledge our entire team and our community for being so supportive of me to allow me to be the chief counselor. So thank you. So when I thank you, I'll also thank those whose shoulders you stand on. Thank you. That was Chief Crystal Smith from Kitimat Village. And that's a wrap on this edition of Walk. An obscure word to some, but not me, which apparently stands for Without Normal Knowledge. I like to think that we and our guests do go beyond normal knowledge. That's what Wonk is all about. Spread the word. I'm Edward Greenspawn. New episodes drop Thursdays. 